0: You're not going to always know a scientific reason for every decision you make. Sometimes it's just in your gut. It's a feel. It's an art, and that's okay. Because people want to denigrate that. They want to say that that's not being scientific. And what's your proof? What's your your reference for that? Well, you know what? Sometimes there isn't a reference. My reference has been I've been doing it 22 years. Is that is that a reference? And a large N.
1: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. And if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. In fact, pause this right now, uh, scroll down. Hit the five star, maybe even give us a little nice little uh, sentence, a little, a little clip of why you love the podcast so much. Boom, duty fulfilled. To learn more about Clinical Athlete, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com, and join the free Calu Community Facebook group where Clinical Athlete and the Level Up Initiative communities have combined to form an amazing group with lots of different learning opportunities. You can join the Calu Community Facebook group by clicking the link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. On this show, I am joined by my usual co-hosts, Jared Madar and John Flagg. Jared is a clinical athlete provider and a physiotherapist in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and he's an online powerlifting coach. John is a clinical athlete provider and certified athletic trainer, online powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach, and the lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. This is another science-to-practice episode where we dig into the weeds of the research a little bit. So if you like digging deep into the science stuff, this show is for you, but I would say this show in particular is very, very practical. We welcome Dan Lorenz onto this episode. Dan is really a living legend in the sports physio world, and he's been a, a big influence on me in terms of applying training and performance principles to rehab. For this conversation, we specifically discussed Dan's recent paper that he authored with colleague Steve Domzowski titled, Criteria-Based Return to Sprinting Progression Following Lower Extremity Injury. And the paper is just what it sounds like. It's a practical, criteria-based protocol and progression to get an athlete back to sprinting following a lower body injury. We've got the paper linked in the show notes, so follow along if you can. Because we discuss some of the finer points of the return to sprint protocol as we're as we're talking about it with Dan, and we end the show with just a really great conversation about what it means to be a great clinician and a lifelong learner. Uh, we think you're going to really enjoy this this conversation with Dan Lorenz. Dan Lorenz, thanks for being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast.
0: It's great to be here, gentlemen. Thank you so much for asking me. I know you got a lot of choices of people, so I'm grateful for the opportunity.
1: Oh, we're really, really excited. And Dan has written several papers over the years, a lot of which have kind of the general feel of how to use strength and conditioning principles in rehab settings. And and those are the papers that I, I send to Clinicians and students all the time, and, and we've got some that are just pinned in our in our forums and things like that. So it's it a no brainer to have you on the show. Um, as those as kind of like basic principles that we can talk about, but specifically, we wanted to get Dan on the show to talk about return to sprinting. Um, a lot of the clinicians and the students in our community have questions about that after, let's say, hamstring strains or, or um, post op ACL things like that, and, and sprinting tends to be kind of a daunting just a, a, a scary thing sometimes for clinicians to get their athletes back to because it's such an, an intense activity and sometimes it's the activity itself that that was when the athlete got injured and, and the progressions of which there's a lot of questions around it. And Dan actually wrote a paper specifically for this it, titled Criteria-Based Return to Sprinting Progression Following Lower Extremity Injury. And we're going to use that as kind of the anchor of the conversation, but... Uh, before we dig into it, Dan, can you give our uh, six listeners a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of backstory about yourself and and what's led you to where you are now, as far as as far as clinical practice and and really your um, your interests in the field and and ultimately what's landed you to where I'm sure is your pinnacle uh, here on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. <laughs>
0: well, thanks. I'll I'll try and be as brief as possible, but. Uh, uh, it'll probably help just how I get to this point. Um, so, I'm originally from uh, suburban Chicago. And uh, if you ever saw the movie Rudy, um, I went to Rudy's high school. And his brother in the movie, Frank, was a, or is a power lifter and a strength coach. And um, he had a, a small gym back home uh, in Joliet, Illinois. and it was out of his garage, and a lot of guys went through and trained there. And um, I had the opportunity to to train there myself. And I, so I started as a uh, started powerlifting really in seventh grade, uh, and went through high school and things. Um, and then in uh, also in high school, it's when I got I got hurt, uh, broke my ankle uh, junior year, missed my whole season. I went through physical therapy for that. Uh, actually, let me rewind a little bit. I knew I wanted to be in sports somehow. I wasn't gifted with that ability to go to the next level, but I, I did want to go into athletic training. I, uh, I frankly, when I was a freshman in high school, I called the, the Bears had athletic trainer at the time and just said, hey, how'd you get to where you're at? He invited me up to training camp or excuse me, to Lake Forest or to <laughs> Hallis Hall in Lake Forest, Illinois, uh, to spend a day with them with in the training room just to kind of see how things went. So um, late high school and early college, I was just hanging out in a lot of weight rooms, uh, going to a lot of strength conditioning meetings, you know, Larry Lilja at Northwestern at the time, uh, uh, Mickey Marotti was at Notre Dame, went to a few of his clinics and stuff. And uh, I just felt all three of those fields really mesh together. I, I, You know, I being on the athletic training side, I, I've said from the beginning that my career has been kind of like the alphabet. You know, the, the athletic training side is the on-field. You know, that's your A through L. And then, you know, the the PT side is kind of the middle of the alphabet. And the strength conditioning side, which I feel is kind of the dark side of, of physical therapy, um, is, is where I felt my strength conditioning background really um, – uh, I felt was going to round out my, uh, clinical abilities. Now the strength conditioning piece in PT specifically, I really think came from George Davies. I spent uh, a rotation, uh, up at Gunderson with him in Wisconsin and, and he knew my interest in this. And we talked a lot about it. And, uh, you know, then I, I started the sports Performance enhancement SIG at his, at his, you know, you should really do this type of a thing. And, uh, he's the general when, when he asks you to do something, you should, you should jump at the opportunity. So, I felt it was a black hole in our field, and I uh, started it. And uh, I certainly don't have all the knowledge. A lot of stuff I have is like many of you on this uh, on this podcast have, have learned it from other people, and uh, just was able to get, to get something going. So we started talking about this more in our field because I, I don't think we do a great job at it, and that's really what spurned writing those other papers. You know, and I have to give credit to the co-authors on those papers: Mike Raymond, Scott Morrison. Of course, I know you guys probably know both. I know those guys have been on your podcast. Um, you know, uh, uh, John Walker, uh, he's in the Mariners organization, a few other guys. So I didn't do it myself by any means. And of course, got to give a uh, uh, tip of the cap to my, you know, a lot of my mentors along the way, uh, I'd say probably Rob Panarello being one of the bigger ones, which I know you guys know Rob too. So I hope that wasn't too long of a summary, but I tried to, uh, get it to this point as quickly as possible.
1: No, I think it's, it's awesome to hear that background because I think all three of us, John, Jared, and I can speak to that Um, because John John and Jared are are competitive powerlifters or powerlifting coaches. Jared's a physio. John's an athletic trainer. And so as you're talking, and I'm I'm a physio, and as as you're talking about the evolution of your education and and your different experiences and all different types of settings, uh, it's, it's relatable, but it's also really just cool to hear the backstory because then the work that comes out of that you know, and is what we kind of learn from. And it's, it's really cool to, to hear where, where, you know, the impetus and, and where it comes from. And I, I think there's lessons to be taken from that backstory too. Like, what did you do to get those early opportunities? Well, you reached out to people and you had conversations.
0: Yeah, and- for sure. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, you, when, the, when the doors open, the opportunities opened, I, I was, I didn't believe in coincidences. I was like, something here's happening. You, you take the opportunity to run with it and just see where it leads. But yeah. Um, a lot of people helped me along the way, trying to do the same thing now. And, you know, like I said, I just was lucky to be in front of uh, gracious people that were willing to, to teach a new guy
1: something. And what I love about your work, because I've, I've heard you speak at CSM several times, it's it's practical. It's rooted, in, it's rooted in the evidence and your interpretation of the evidence, but it's very practical. There's always... What, you know, things to take away and, and to compare to, you know, say the programs the, that I write and like, oh, you know, Dan's just putting it all out there. Like, this is what he does. And this paper that we'll talk about here and just kind of the return to sprinting progression is no different. Um, first of all, when you were writing this paper about return to sprinting, where, what, what was the gap that you had noticed in the literature as you, were, as you were looking for that or as you were thinking about writing something like this, like what was the impetus?
0: Well, let me say this. I want to do give credit to my co-author on this one, Steve Domzowski out of Wayne State. You know, uh, Steve really kind of got this conversation started a long time ago, uh, and we just started to tinker. Um, so I, I have to give props to him on this. But I, I think for me, a lot of the stuff that I, not only when I speak at meetings, but a lot of the papers that I write or, or just when I teach now, uh, I'm really sensitive to the folks that don't have a lot of resources. It's easy to do when you got, you know, i got 17,000 square feet, ice clinic device, turf, two squat racks. I mean, I could do, we could do a really good job, but a majority of people don't have access to that stuff, uh, whether it's a small training room in an NIA school, a high school training room, or a, uh, or a physical therapy clinic in rural, uh, rural Kansas or rural Idaho, you know what I mean? So uh, I really try and speak to those kind of folks because you can do a good job I believe you can, even with limited resources. So I think that's where a lot of this started. The sprinting thing uh, really was because, like many people out there listening to this, how many times are we limited by either cost of therapy, limited visits, kids go away for the summer. I mean, geez, this article, you want to talk about coincidences? This article was published in April last year. This is right when COVID broke. So you want to talk about, like, uh, the timeliness of when this thing came out? I mean, talk about a blessing from from above that, you know, people were like, I can't see you here, do this until you see me next. So I think that's really, that's where this came from is something with structure. Cause probably one of my biggest pet peeves, I know, couldn't, we haven't talked a lot before, but I, I, one of the things that I hate when I go to meetings is when we're so vague about, uh, our, our parameters and what we're prescribing. And when we tell people, you know, Hey, go do this or go do that. Well, just, just run until you're tired or, uh, you know, don't do too much. Well, what does that mean? You know, we, we are so vague with stuff. And I know it's hard because individual differences and in different sports and training age and biological age, all those things go into it. But uh, I just feel like we needed to be more, uh, we had to have more planning and something more specific we could give people with objective measurables. And I felt like through the evolution of this program, working on it over 10 years, I feel like we got something really good.
1: Can you Can you talk a bit about criterion-based Versus, let's say, time-based, because this is—we talk about that sometimes with, with uh, ACL rehab, where it was like there was some magic about eight or you know that nine-month mark. Well, it was actually like, well, you can have a lot of different types of presentations at that nine-month mark. You should, you know, you should have some criteria that you're looking at, not just not just time. But it, can you go into a little bit about the importance of of this progression from a criteria-based standpoint and what that means? Did you guys
0: see uh, Varsity Blues? Love that movie. Okay. Do you remember when Lance got hurt and he was in the hospital and his dad his dad, was, or was hearing from the doctor how bad it was? And he just goes, how long? And he's like, Lance needs multiple surgeries. I'm paraphrasing here. But he just goes, how long? He cut him off, right? So that's why we have the time-based stuff. Not because of Lance Harbor, uh, Johnny Moxon, but, uh, you know, we need that stuff because – People need an idea, you know, of how long this is going to take. You know, obviously, I worked in the NFL uh, for a bit. I mean, that's the main thing. How long is this guy going to be out, right, uh, so they can plan accordingly? So there, there's there's a need for time-based to have a general time frame, but we hang on them too much. So, uh, you know, I, I, so your question, if I recall, was was about the criteria-based. It's so important because if you don't have – specific criteria to, to before you, you know, it, it, and if this, then this approach, or, you know, as I learned from, from, from George having the functional testing algorithm, I mean, that has really been just the best template for me from no matter who I'm seeing, uh, throughout my career, because it does, it, it allows you to check boxes and make sure things are done. Now I know no matter what study you read, I mean, you know, the criteria is vague. I mean, you do a, a search of protocols, you know, online, they're all over the map, uh, it doesn't help. And I'll tell you, I got a great example. you mind if I go this route? I hope you don't mind me digressing here. But I was, I'm was i literally seeing right now, I just saw him yesterday, a strong man who tore his uh, – he had a distal bicep uh, repair. He—he, um, uh, uh, he, I'm trying to remember how he tore it uh, off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But I was literally talking yesterday to one of my other PTs about potentially writing this up as a case study because how do you progress a guy who deadlifts 700 pounds? You know what I mean? Like here, here's – so I even asked our doctor who didn't operate on him. I just was asking his opinion because his doctor that operated on him was, 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 was sounds relatively conservative. And I'm, I'm like, i got to ask you something. If you had a, a power lifter who could deadlift 700 pounds, you know, uh, understand that 200 for him is like three pounds for most people, right? So if we start him, like most people would be appalled at the fact that you're going to try and deadlift on his first day at 200 pounds. But for him, that's a toy, right? So we don't have, there's just not out there a lot of stuff like this, but I think that's what we have to try and do is to try and have some sort of a metric to start from when we do these things. And I think that have criteria-based uh, progressions with anything is a good plan. So sorry about the digression there, but hopefully that, that this case kind of illustrates my point.
1: Oh, you're speaking John's language. Anytime you say strongman too, he competed in that. He, he trained strongman okay. competitors as well. Um any deadlift, John's, what's your best deadlift? 725. 725. Oh, there you go, right?
2: But yeah, that makes have... complete sense, you know, like well, the starting point, so so foreign to most people. Like, okay, I deadlift 700 pounds and I ruptured a bicep. Now, what? Well, we have a surgical attachment, but the relative intensity there is like, what are you gonna say for that guy? Well, deadlift till it feels heavy. Because when you said "run till you feel tired," you just said "run," and I got tired. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like, <laughs> right. what's what's this athlete's actual starting point? And that can be so foreign for a lot of people.
0: You know, uh, we learn so much from our patients. That's why I still enjoy being in the trenches and seeing patients. I don't think I'm ever going to stop. I learned to pull it from my dead hand, so to speak. But uh, I'll tell you, you know what I, you know what I learned from this on is I had a power powerlifter uh, a number of years ago. I was probably three years out of school, and he. Um, uh, ruptured his or excuse me he had a massive massive cuff tear tore his um, cuff in a, in a meet on his final attempt to at the bench this is the mountain of a man five nine I couldn't even tell you how, how much he weighed um, you, know, he, he fit the, you know he fit the know he fit the profile he had a real deep voice and and the, the beard and the tats everywhere you know and the very first day we finally got to load him I gave him a five pound dumbbell arbitrarily. And yeah, I remember I'll never forget this. He just looked at me, he's just churning out reps in the scapular plane. He goes, Are you sure? And I'm like, No. So I gave him a 10. And he's like, Are you sure? Like he's just killing it, right? But I mean, for most people, you know, that is that's insane to start on the first day, right? But for him, relative to who's in front of us, we don't have a lot of that. So from that day forward, I did handout dynamometry. Uh, to uh, to establish load on that first time from then on out. So again, I, I don't know if that's the right way, but it seemed logical to me at the time.
1: <laughs> well, it sets the stage well for for this then progression back to return to sprinting because what's the, what's the criteria? So just to lay it out and people will, will have this conversation with the assumption that people can pull up the paper and, and kind of follow along and see you know the tables that are cleanly organized like this is the return to sprinting protocol here's the volume here's the reps and we can talk about what, you know the why b- behind those suggestions but we've got three stages to this to this protocol which there's kind of like a, a prerequisite to like your recommendation is whether you're coming back from hamstring acl lower extremity injury there should probably be some type of of walk jog progression that you recommend sure. that's yes yeah. i did That's not included in the paper, but it's kind of a, you should do this. And then you cite a couple papers that, that can be pulled to have that. Um, Well, you can speak on that a little bit, kind of the prerequisite, almost like the, the training to train.
0: Exactly. That's what that is. That's a great way to say it, Quinn. That's exactly right.
1: Um,
0: I I think it's confidence uh, to get that started with the walk, jog. Uh, I think there's that baseline level of fitness. I think all of us have probably seen that first time. All right, today's your day to run. And you run 30 feet in the clinic, and you got to pull the AED, right? So, and, and admittedly, over the years, I've gotten better at this, like, of, of building that work capacity early on. So, like, for example, I have a ski erg in our facility now that we start pretty much day one with our ACLs. Uh, we post the good leg, and they're doing double arm uh, intervals on, on the, the ski erg or the arm bike. We'll get the battle ropes out and do those kind of things. Again, I have those resources now. I know not every place, everywhere has those, but that's how I'm using that now. So, yeah, walk-jog is um, for the general fitness. It also tells us just how reactive their knee is and how irritable it is. We'll move through it. Hey, if they're – yes, I, there's structured walk-jog programs, but, again, who's in front of you? If they're, if they're plowing through it fine, they're coming back with no effusion, their joint's not sore, those kind of things, I'm good to move them forward. But also, too – this also tells us, too, about just the the load tolerance for the joint, right? So this is kind of one of those ways it buys us time as clinicians that, hey, man, you ran, you ran, uh, you walked eight minutes, jogged six, repeated twice, and your knee was really sore. Do you really think you're ready for what you think you're ready for? I mean, it, it's kind of you lead them to it without giving them the answer, you know? So,
1: So it's informative as much as it is therapeutic almost as a – as, as like you said, as kind of a, a an outcome in and of itself, like how do they respond to just this lowest base level progression is there I'm, I'm right. thinking from a hamstring standpoint because I never have a really a great answer to this question. People say, well after a, an acute hamstring strain, when do I start them jogging and you know the common answer was well, it you know to tolerance if they can tolerate it is it in your mind, is the walk jog program like if you if you could jog day one after an acute hamstring strain, let's do it? Or is there a period of time? Is there a criteria almost before that that you would that you would be thinking about?
0: So you're asking? I'm sorry. I want to make sure I understand your question. Are you asking if I would do would I pass over walk jog?
1: No. Would would. So, for let's say hamstring specifically, we'll we'll put aside ACL rehab for a second and just say hamstring. After acute hamstring okay. strain, if the question from a clinician is, when would I start the walk jog? Should I wait a period of time? They're still bruised, um, but they but they can actually jog. Jogging feels okay. Should, should when do I start the walk jog program? You know, officially is there is there kind of a time? Criteria there, or is it? Hey, if you can do it, let's go. I'm absolutely. If you can do it, let's go. I mean, what's
0: and maybe that's just conditioning from the environments I've worked in. You know, I, I don't believe. Yeah, the times in the back of my head, and I know there's healing and things. But uh, you know, if, assuming uh, what we'll, we'll assume this is an off season. There's no hurry to get somebody back. Are we on the same page about that? Obviously. Yeah. So if I if I'm not under a time crunch, I'm going to extend it as long as I can. Right. But I mean, if 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 they're not tender, if they got if they got good strength, if you know the Askling test and those some of those things that I look at, you know, for hamstring uh, injury, if, if they're not having a lot of pain or grabbing or that you know uh, that hesitation, then I'm they're gonna go. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna go till till they feel that they can't. I I, I agree. I self kind of self regulate their intensity. Um, what they feel comfortable doing. And I'm always at, for me, for hamstrings, is are you feeling it pull or are you feeling it grab at you? Because that's usually Mm -hmm. letting you know that it's not quite ready for that.
1: And dovetailing into the actual return to sprint progression now, in our our stage one is what you have here, and it's all laid out there. But the criteria there was having done a walk-jog program, you know, four weeks, four-week walk-jog, things felt good. Like like you said, let's – Talk about the person in front of us. You don't have to wait four weeks, but I think that's a good kind of general recommendation. Four weeks walk, jog. You progress, maybe even upwards to thirty, you know, thirty minutes of of jogging feels good. Strength of the quadriceps and hamstrings. Now, maybe we're talking like post op ACL. The recommendation is seventy percent uh, limb symmetry. 70 percent of the uninvolved to the to the involved. W- what are some of the things that you see? As returning to sprinting bef- before that strength threshold is met, a- and some s- potential downside to returning to sprinting too soon before strength is at a certain level.
0: Well, I think you just set yourself to get hurt more down the road, and that's why I said too about the you know the criteria about you know the active range eventually having that that soft tissue compliance with you know passive flexion. You know, can they grab their heel and can it touch their glutes? I mean. That stuff matters. So uh, I don't think it's it's just a strength thing. Uh, remember a lot of, you know, because I've had <laughs> I've had some strength coaches kind of push back a bit about calling this a sprinting progression because of the volume. And I'm like, the operative word in the title is return to sprinting. Mm-hmm. That, you know, initially it's the, the intensity is low of, of jogging. It's, it's building repeated sprintability, building that work capacity. We know we need that aerobic base, right? So that's why... Uh, you know, the intensity is lower. The distances are farther. The first two phases are untimed because people are going to be out of shape. And, and also, too, this is, that's why I like this, too, especially for these prolonged rehab times uh, that we want to try and uh, encourage our athletes to do. This buys you time because they have, complete, they have to complete the runs in the work-rest ratios. And the competitive nature of athletes alone, in my experience of tinkering with this, is that it makes them mad if they can't. Right. And it's a big deal when they finish. Right. So uh, I hope that answers your question Uh, where, where, where
2: where you were headed with it anyway. It's really interesting to me. I looked at this and you mentioned strength coaches kind of scoffing at it a little bit. But it reminded me so much of some of the return to throw protocols that I use for baseball players for years where it's, you know, 30 feet for 20 throws. And you just gradually work them up that ladder to to get general fitness back in their arm and their mechanics. And then before you get them back to pitching off a mound, you've got that 80 to 85, 90 percent velocity with mechanics. And you start talking to the pitching coach and it just makes that really progressive return where you do have to build a base. And then you do have to look at mechanics and you do have to then actually get them thrown before you get them in a game situation. And it, it makes so much practical sense. I'm surprised there's pushback just because it's there's sprinting involved in the title, but like it it makes a lot of logical sense based off other similar protocols to return to sport that I've seen.
0: Well, and understand you're really not sprinting towards the very end. You know, uh, a lot of those early phases, it's it's a more high intensity jog, and and we all know that they need to build that work capacity. And I know there's limitations. Everybody's asking, well, what about cutting? Well. You can if you want to put cutting in Go ahead like if you have the same distance Over 50 yards you want to cut every 10 Every 10 yards, fine with me It's still predictable uh, There's no cognitive demand with this there's no Reactive to it um, But but sprinting repeatedly Is something a lot of our anaerobic athletes need to do Soccer players basketball players uh, Football players like specifically Wide receivers DBs I mean those things Need to happen so um, I, Yeah I, I,
1: <laughs> I, I, Everybody needs it <laughs> And what I like about it is you've, you've got different variables. I mean, variables that we think about, if we're just looking at a blank piece of paper, like, okay, I'm going to write this return to sprint programming. I've got volume as a variable. It's just kind of total work done or yardage maybe in this case. The intensity, the intent of the sprint, um, right. whether it's going to be timed or not, because that, that was a distinction that I thought was really interesting in the progression. You, you give a kind of a, an intent, an intensity range you know, run comparatively to a full out 100% sprint. Think about when you did that, I want you to back off 25%, back off 50%. And you've got recommendations for the clinician. These are actually untimed versus timed. And then the work-rest ratio it seems like a, little, a bit of an anchor for the program because if you look at the progressions from stage one, two, and three, the work-rest ratio increases because the intensities of the sprints increase, the, exactly. in, the intent and the and the and the speed, uh, but the volume decreases to accommodate. Right. Yeah, to accommodate that intensity. So were those were all of those variables the way that you guys lined them up? Was that just based on what has seemed over the you know thousands and thousands of hours and, and countless athletes that has seemed to to be the the best way to go? <sighs> Lots of tinkering. Um, we
0: started out with way too much volume in the beginning. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I should have said this before, talking about kind of the background that got me to this point about things. Like when I went to strength conditioning courses and I would see a lot of strength coaches were very gracious about giving their program for whatever sport or whatever talk they were. They gave the sample program, which I thought was great. And I would look at these things and I would always wonder, why did you start at that number? Not criticizing, just what made you decide that distance, right? Like, what made you? Uh, if, if these are the sprints you did, I'm not criticizing that you did them or the volume or the distance or anything. Well, why? Why that number? Uh, you know, as a as a PT, we we want everything in a box, right? So it seems like it should be 100 yards should be the first day, and then 125 the second day, and then 150. Like it should go in this in this sequential progression. I mean, heck, I even found myself. Um, uh, Rob Panarello, Al Vermeule, and Johnny Parker's book, The System. I remember reading that book, and I asked Rob, because some of his intensities were like 28%, 32%. <laughs> I go, how did you arrive at that? Like, it's just, they're just, and not, again, not to criticize. It was really just genuinely interested as to how you, how you got to that. So, so back to the, the sprinting progression, we, we tinkered with the fact, well, first of all, the first two phases when we started were timed. Nobody was completing it because it, they were too out of shape. But we wanted them to get the volume in, and we felt there was value in people finishing a stage, even if it was untimed, because it it felt like progression to them. It was achievement, right? They've done their strength tests for me. They did their step-down tests. All these things are going well. They've been busting their butt, and now this is kind of a small goal, uh, almost a cluster goal if you're looking at the Therapeutic Alliance thing. Uh, We clustered it that they finished a stage untimed. Okay, well, now we're going to do it with time, right? So – uh, we, that's a, that's an element that we added in probably about five years into it. Cause we realized that the volume just was not, it was too much at, at each progression up to the next stage. Cause that, that increase in that intensity from a 50% to a 75% ish was a big jump for them. So we, that's why I made those on time two in stage two or in that second phase. Does that make sense? So I would say that is definitely one thing that has changed over time is that we made those first two phases untimed for that reason because of the fitness. And that's why building that work capacity is so important. It really is. And, again, i got to tip my cap to, to, to Rob Penarello for really uh,
2: making me think about that a lot more uh, in my programming. I looked at that and I went, I would not survive any part, port, part of stage one because my fitness level is not ready. So, I, I, I can see that. Well, and the nice thing is, as I said, gentlemen, that uh, it
0: it buys you time for those anxious ones to get back. Uh, we know that they, they start, you know, they can go back to do do sport things earlier uh, than they're allowed to maybe return to play. Um, but we know the re- repeat risk of injury, and, and uh, if if they can do this over and over again at at high speed with the fitness level, they're just going to be that much better better shape. Uh, when they go back both better shape for risk of injury, but also better shape just fitness wise.
1: And then, and then when you do time it, cause each stage has steps. So they're kind of sub subsections of each stage and the, the volume well, depending on, on what stage you're in, the volume of the steps uh, increases slightly or actually decreases towards the end. Cause again, intensity is, is high, but is it, is it essentially, I was able to complete this volume in one bout, especially for the untimed steps, and that is the marker, as prescribed, I can then move on to the next stage and kind of sequentially from there, completed, check this box off, can move on. But you can space these out however you want, right, from a frequency yes. standpoint, and that's kind of, sure. yeah.
0: Yeah, no question. Because, you know, if you're in the 50 percent, if you're in that stage one, you're still more than likely having to build a lot of strength. And that's going to be more my priority in those phases. Uh, towards the end, you're at stage three. Now we're really starting to get close to getting back to sport. Uh, you might you lifting uh, emphases have probably emphasized more power at this point. Hopefully you've achieved the strength goals. Hopefully you're working on more reactive type of training. So all of that is going to – that's manipulated along, along the process, and it's individual for each one, remember? So I remember a lot of times we're handing this off to people, and they're doing this from afar mm-hmm. because they're out of visits or they're limited visits or I only got four left or, or they, they're – mom and dad can't afford it anymore. So remember that – these were the people we were initially really targeting for this. Uh, so we give them that structure later on that you know, here's how your lifting would change. Here's how your, your other workouts would change as a result.
1: And do you find that helps with buy-in too, having more of a kind of a structure in place so they can actually see where they're headed because i could see sometimes it's hard to tell an athlete all right we're not going to time these runs but eventually we will you know speed is just not important we just want you to get back to it you know and but but having that having it laid out like that they say okay this is where we are here's where we're headed you know i'll listen
0: i do quinn yeah. i i do i really think it's important and Athletes have that innate desire to compete, and as we all know, working with athletes, sometimes their worst enemy is their own or their worst competitor is themselves, so if it gives them the chance to to compete against themselves in a predictable, safe environment, those kind of a thing, or that kind of thing, I I, I think that's really beneficial to to them in the long run as well.
1: Hey, everyone. Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from our great conversation with Dan Lorenz about returning to sprinting. Your brain is probably spinning right now with all of this info. It would be awesome to have a community to talk about it with. Oh, wait, that exists. So if you haven't already, go to the link in the show notes and join the Kalu Community Facebook group. Read the pinned announcement. Introduce yourself. Read the resources that we've compiled for you with the Kalu mission and the Kalu Starter Pack materials. Uh, It's just an awesome group. And obviously, if you haven't gotten your ticket for the 2021 Kalu Summit, you better get on that. That link is in the show notes as well. It's happening in in September. It's going to be three days of awesomeness and you're going to have a serious case of FOMO. If you don't, join in the fun. And now, back to the show. You had mentioned this earlier, you probably got questions because I am curious if once this came out last April, so now you have more of almost like a testing pool, people are going to actually use it. You know, more people are, are going to use it, maybe give you feedback. Um, I'd be interested to hear of, of any feedback that you've gotten since then. But you mentioned changing, uh, tra- training change of direction concurrently with a program like this. And in the paper, you cautioned a little bit in terms of the intent and the intensity of training change of direction before you have really established the ability to sprint just in the sagittal plane first can you talk a little bit about concurrently training change of direction and sprinting and and just any considerations therein
0: well anything explosive uh i i work on first so if i'm If I'm working sprinting at closer to full speeds, well, even though change of direction involves a little bit of a XL-D cell, uh, if it's at a lower intensity, I'm doing the sprinting first. But if the training object for me, if the training objective is working on change of direction, well, then that's going to go first. Uh, And again, of course, as you guys know, how many many times a week am I seeing them? How many times can they work out a week? I mean, all that matters as far as uh, splitting those things up. I mean, I just had this conversation yesterday with a professional athlete, you know, I was like, so how many days are you going to give me, you know, and she's like, well, I'll do three or four. I'll go, well, I need to know, are you doing three or four? (laughs) Because that's going to change how we program, right? So, so I think to answer your question, to me, it's always about intensity, whichever one is the, the, the higher speed, the most, uh, more, um, fatiguing, uh, both from a central nervous system standpoint, uh, and, uh, uh, peripheral, then that's what we're going to do first. Does that answer your question? Yeah, d- or am I on the right track? No, anymore? for sure.
1: <laughs> w- having have it, uh having had the protocol been out now a year, is there any feedback that you've gotten back? From oh yeah, that's right. Clinicians, that, no, I, that was going to be a follow up anyway. That was the other one. No, yeah yeah, 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 that was the
0: other one. Sorry, man. Sorry. Um, okay, so
1: uh, to this point,
0: uh, it's been overwhelmingly positive. People that have reached out. Now, uh, now, maybe people are keeping it close to the vest. Maybe people aren't saying anything. I don't know, but it has. Uh, and I would be transparent I promise anybody that knows me that I would tell you if I'm getting uh, I already shared with you some of the strength coach comments that I've got so uh, but no from clinicians it's been it's been very very positive uh, that it's really helped and hasn't been any suggestions yet about what what they change or do differently that doesn't mean they're not out there I just haven't heard them yet but I've encouraged anybody tinker with it take it uh, You know, we're looking at the throwing progressions, you know, those ones we had back in the 90s. We're starting to do different things now because we know more. This People might look back at this and and scoff at it or, hey, look at this garbage we used to do. I don't know. I was just trying to start the discussion and give something tangible for not only our athletes but also clinicians. So if it ends up being bunk or it ends up not being the way to do it, that's okay. Uh, It's one of those ones you put yourself out there, right?
2: Haters are normally the loudest, Dan. Um, If they were there, they'd be shouting from the rooftops. In the immortal words of
0: Metallica. The empty can rattles the most, right?
2: <laughs> this guy's con- continually becoming my best friend. What is going on here? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you are there are there misconceptions in general that you find with say young clinicians or students in and we could say just return to sport in general, but let's say you know keep it kind of specific to running and sprinting um, thought processes or assumptions that are made that don't necessarily play out clinically but may, may hinder uh, a rehab process if a clinician is, is thinking a certain way? Um, and it could be anything, you know, anything that you've kind of come across that seems to be a pattern when it comes to stuff like this.
0: Uh, young clinicians, I think they're, just, they're still hung on the, the time-based. Um, I think they're afraid to push back on physicians that say, oh, yeah, go ahead, run. Um, I know with my staff. Uh, when I had my own practice and what I do currently with my staff is that we're very. I'm very big on start from day one, telling your patients that it's criteria. The doc's going to probably tell you you're you're okay to run. There's difference between medically cleared and physically cleared. Uh, I think it doesn't help because a lot of young clinicians, especially, will search the web and they're going to find protocols all over the maps so that further muddies the waters for them. Uh, that's why I said if you go by criteria, you don't have to worry about all that. So as much as we can. Uh, have uh, objective criteria. Now, whether or not those change over time, they might. They always are. Depending on what study you read, they're different criteria. Uh, but having something that you can standardize uh, that as long as they meet this, they can go to the next step, then I, I think that's probably the best direction, That particularly for young clinicians, that they need to go. But I think all of us would agree on this call. That the, they are woefully underprepared for strength conditioning principles, applying them, uh, dosing, uh, when they come out, if they were, we wouldn 't see quad values being in the sixty percent at discharge as an example
1: <laughs> the the medically cleared versus physically cleared, I think is huge, and because um, why would you know if you 're an athlete, why would you know the difference? if the physician who ultimately is is kind of you know the final say on on what cleared means or discharge or or these types of things like if if he 's getting the okay from the physician. And the PT's like, "Whoa, you know who the athlete's kind of stuck in the middle." Um, and I, so to your point, from if you're reiterating those points from day one, then it's not a surprise.
0: Yeah, no, uh, they they know about it ahead of time. I was, you know, it's it, no no patient likes surprises, right? So if you've told them from day one that here's what you need to do. I mean, I have a, I have a, a gal, She actually seen her position right now, I think, as we speak. Uh, she's headed to a Division One school for soccer. I go, he's probably going to tell you you can run because you've reached the time frame. Remember what we said, you don't get to run yet. You know, we haven't even strength tested you yet because it's too early. Now, she's 12 weeks yesterday, uh, but she's not ready. Uh, but we also have it on the other end. I know uh, one, of, one of my uh, therapists is battling... You know, managing a uh, patient who uh, the physician, you know, he four months we can get people back uh, after an ACL. And, and this is one of those ones where you just have to say uh, stick to your guns. Uh, you have to go home at the end of the day and know you did the right thing if they ever leave or go somewhere else because, you know, you uh, you didn't tell them what they wanted to hear, or didn't push them back at four. Well, uh, sometimes that's what happens, and then we all know too that sometimes you roll the dice, and those people end up doing fine. But we also know they all, a lot of them don't either. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we—if you're consistent, look them in the eye, stick to your guns—that's the best thing you can do.
1: It's kind of like the Odyssey when you're trying—you're warning somebody about the sirens, and they're like, "Oh, it can't be that bad." And then, the, and they hear that beautiful music, and they just get hooked in, no matter what. They hear that physician say, "All right, you're cleared." And then it's like, no, no, no. Remember, we talked about this. It's like, oh, they just want to put your muffs. Nope, Doc said I'm cleared.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I know. And, and we, do, we, we, we do. I spend a lot of time educating medically versus physically cleared. Yeah. You know, I don't even asking him, well, he said I'm clear. Well, did he watch you do anything? You know, did he watch you do a step down? Did he watch you run? Did he watch you hop? You know, I know everybody, like, it's, it's so fashionable to bash the hop test now, but did he watch you do anything? Like, to just say that you're cleared? Uh, you know, and you get them thinking. Like, they, they start to figure it out for themselves when you start to ask the right questions. So
1: one more just specific question because I we like to get people on the show and I want to ask you things that that I care about. Sorry, si- <laughs> sorry, six listeners. That's but okay. n- now speaking specifically to ACL, there's always the debate on on when somebody can start jogging. Just the walk jog protocol, like we had talked about before. Is there a consideration now with just the graft healing? In terms of somebody starting walk jog, being the difference between being physically able or it, it, it being too soon after the surgery, just from a, from a graft standpoint? Absolutely. Uh, I don't, were you done? Yes. I was
0: ready to answer that one. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, no, no, absolutely. Um, we know, uh, you know, Freddie Fu's study in 2014 in uh, JBJS, you know, he, he put, uh, he showed MRI photos. Of when the graft is incorporated, and you see this gray line of where the ACL is at seven months, and then it's finally black at twelve. Yeah. Uh, we know the hamstring, graft, the soft, any soft tissue graft, quad, hamstring are a little bit behind the bone patellar tendon bone. We know that the bone patellar tendon bone uh, is incorporated a little bit faster, and and you can move them along a little faster if they meet the criteria, of course. And then allographs, if I see them, I fortunately don't see them too much. I saw them a lot in the late 90s and early 2000s. Again, it's one of those things that it, it's great. You have to, if you're going to be good at this, you have to know where we've been. You have to know your history. We used to do Z-plasties in the shoulder to, to shrink the capsule. We used to do, uh, you know, we used to burn cartilage in the knee. Uh, there's just so many things that we used to do that we just don't do anymore. And uh, anyway, I think we've, learned over time that allografts have fallen out of favor and and i typically wouldn't let and people might think i'm crazy on this but we know from the long-term meta-analysis studies uh, the main problem with allografts they stretch out over time so i'm typically not letting an allograft run even uh, probably till six months again they know that though i tell them that look if you're going to rehab with me you have to trust me these things stretch out over time i want you to have a good knee in 10 15 20 years uh you know, again, if I have an athlete, this is their last year, okay, be different, of course. And we all know about that. You might know about that JOSPT study, that Italian soccer player that that returned to sport in 90 days. It was a JOSPT case probably, gosh, 10, 15 years ago at this point. You know, that blew my mind at the time. So it depends on who's in front of you, of course. But, yeah, I'm, I'm delaying allographs a long time, as long as they'll let me. <laughs> Let's put it that way.
1: So ultimately it comes down to... Again, the person in front of you, and then considering time, both time and criteria, and you, you just have to kind of weigh all of these factors to to, right. to manage whatever uncertainty is in front of you
0: it you know, was always buzzwords right like it's the the trendy thing to say or do right like there was you know full stop you know that was something for a while and I'm trying to think. I'm of off the top of my head here, but you know, I think one is shared decision making. That's another big one now, right? Like that was a term I did not hear in PT school 20 years ago, but it's everybody's talking about shared decision making, right? Therapeutic alliance. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm just saying that in keeping with the trends, this is shared decision making at its finest. Because you, what you might want to do in your head might not be what the athlete wants, right? That goes back to that whole Sackett idea of you know evidence, expertise, and patient values. I mean, this is where patient values come in. Like what I want might not be what they want, but if they meet the criteria, then we can meet in the middle, I suppose, with the assumption that they know the risks of the decisions that they're making, right? I, I tell patients all the time, I'm like a lawyer. I give you advice, you don't have to take it, <laughs> right?
1: Is that, because my last question is, this one is kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, but thinking back to like a younger, a younger Dan um, and now kind of where you are now, I'm a sage now. Sage. Sage, Dan. I'm just kidding. I mean, you quoted Metallica to us, so obviously. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. What are some things that you would tell your younger uh, clinical self, and not specifically return to sprinting, but just kind of in general, um, some things that you've learned along the way? I think the best advice that I've adhered to,
0: really, I have, was be an expert at the basics. Uh, I, you know, it's a joke, uh, Scott Morrison and I joke a little bit cause he nags me about not being on Instagram or some of these other social media platforms. And I'm like, dude, I'm painfully boring in my approach. Like we joked around that I would show a trap bar deadlift and every day just add 10 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Like that'd be my Instagram. You know what I mean? So uh, be an expert at the basics. I've tried really hard in every aspect of whether it's a shoulder or an ACL to be really, really good at the basics of exercise progression, having a keen eye. Um, I think that those are, it's probably something I would say I followed. I know if you ask me, uh, I thought it was a badge of honor coming out of school again. What I knew at the time, remember, I was coming out of school in the late nineties. At the time, those, you know, those protocols out of Indianapolis with the rapid, you know, the, the accelerated rehab that was in vogue still. So I thought it as a badge of honor that if I got somebody back in five months, and I know I did that, and I still tested people. I thought I did a good job, but I know that that was maybe probably some of my ego that I needed to prove that I was a valid sports PT to do that. Um, Obviously, I wouldn't do that now. Uh, What I would tell my old self, um, probably give yourself a break. Uh, You still learn a lot. And I, to this day, I'll drive, I got a long commute home and I'll still think about patients in ways I made a mistake or I missed it. Um, that's one, because be, I was hard on myself. I'm just a perfectionist and it bugs me if I don't get it right. Uh, I also, I think to a lot of clinicians, uh, maybe not for me, but I would tell younger clinicians coming out that um, you're not going to always know. You're not going to always know a scientific reason for every decision you make. Like sometimes it's just in your gut. It's a feel. It's an art, and that's okay. Because people want to denigrate that, that, or they they want to they want to say that that's not being scientific. And well, what's your proof? What's your, what's your reference for that? Well, you know what? Sometimes there isn't a reference. My reference has been I've been doing it 22 years. Is that is that a reference? And an, a large n. You know, I, I feel that I told this to a couple of my clinicians recently, I've been trying to, I I work with a baseball facility and and I was like, you guys, you have a chance to feel probably 60 shoulders and elbows of college and high school pitchers. This is a massive opportunity to increase your end, increase your end, stay extra, stay on Friday late to see that one more patient, maybe even work Saturdays willingly, you know, and see some patients to build your end because there's going to come a time where you're going to listen to a patient for five seconds and you're going to know what the problem is. You're going to use your exam to confirm it. And that's where you're at a really good point when, and not to say that those are going to be wrong. of course there's, you know, your, your first couple hypotheses are more than likely right most of the time, but until you build a big N uh, it's hard to do that. Uh, So yeah, hopefully, gosh, uh, again, I, Time to prepare. I may have had something a lot more enlightening, a lot more like "Wow, you know, you know, rub your beard and swirl the brandy snifter and that kind of a thing." If, but uh, <laughs> but I hope that that's as profound as I can come up with off the cuff. Thank you.
3: No, man, I got to I, I got to jump in there. I mean, if I had some brandy, I'd be swirling, I'd be sipping, contemplating life uh, more than I am right now. But just to just to say how much I think it, it helps me, and, and maybe it's just because. I'm, I'm also a perfectionist, very type A. I think a lot about things, probably more so than I should, where I have a hard time letting things go. So just having someone else who clearly is very well established in, in the field and who has been doing this a damn long time, um, say, give yourself a break, but also illustrating how that can coincide with holding yourself to a high standard. Because you know? clearly there's passion, at least from what I can tell and, and hear yeah. in terms of the people that you're working with. Right, you you clearly give a damn, which I think is should be a prerequisite for most of us. One would hope, anyway. Um, which I think is great, but also cuts the other way too. Where sometimes we need to be told, like, "Hey, that's okay. Learn from it. Use this to do better." But you're you're human too.
0: Yeah, uh, I first off, I do love it. It does. Somebody told me a long time ago, it just oozes from your pores of passion. This it does. I still love seeing patients. I read incessantly. I try and talk smart, like a lot of the people on podcasts, uh, which is why a lot of times, unless I'm talking about something specifically, like I just <laughs> I was in a conversation once on an email thread with um, with Scott Morrison and Rich Willie. Rich Willie, if you, you probably know Rich Willie. Uh, you know he's really, really sharp. And these two are arguing back and forth about difference between rate of force development and impulse. I admit, and maybe it's just. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I have the humility to say that I'm just not as smart as those two. I'm just not. That's okay. So really my overarching point in my last email in that thread a while ago was when you guys are done fighting about this and you come to the solution, let me know what you come up with and I'll tell you how I'll apply it. Can we agree to that? So I I would say that (laughs) I let all the really, really smart people argue about nuance and and argue about all these various things we see in some of these platforms. And then when they're done arguing – I said, give me your summary and tell me what to do with it, because I'm still in the trenches. So
3: I think you just became my spirit animal with that whole thing. That's <laughs> awesome.
0: Yeah, well, it is. I may, like I said, I don't have a problem admitting that I don't know what I don't know. And uh, if you spend five minutes on social media, everybody knows everything about everything <laughs> uh, on any topic, which is amazing. That you could be that well informed about a topic that came up yesterday, right? So that's pretty awesome.
1: Dunning Kruger is a hell of a drug.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Right. We had we had Rich on the show too, but I I just tell I just make fun of Scott the, when he I know that the word heuristic is gonna is gonna come out of his mouth within about thirty seconds, and so then I just start making fun of him, and, and then he ends right. his diatribe. <laughs> um, yeah. but no. increase your N is to I thought that was profound, and I'm not just I'm not using that word as hyperbole. Um, we talk about getting your reps in all the time, whether it's reading research or it's. Your clinical practice, every, every patient encounter is an opportunity, exactly like you said, and that's an opportunity for deliberate practice. It's something that you can uh, reflect on and learn from, be it a good or bad outcome. You know you can't, you can't play the outcome game, you've got to play the process game. And if the outcome wasn't good, exactly yeah, you, you audit your process. But that message alone, I think, is just worth its weight in gold.
0: Well, and and one of the one of the things I'll say because I hear this a lot from young clinicians and things that reach out about jobs and just people over the years, and, and they and it just is what it is. There's a lot of uh, physical therapy environments that are factories or a mill. You know, they're just you know they're seeing 25 a day or whatever, and I know that wears people out. I know that burns people out, and it does. I've been in those environments. I understand it entirely. But in that right person that has that desire to be really good. I'll say, I just want you to think about this. There's always going to be jobs somewhere else that you can take, but that volume that you're seeing, I know you might not to be given the care you want to give, but how many bodies are you seeing and in increasing your database? Like, just think about that. Yeah, you might be seeing two or three at once and an hour and a half of paperwork. At the end, I get it. I understand it. I've done it. But <laughs> the but here is that you can always leave at some point. Uh, and But the the value you get from seeing those bodies is you can't put a value on that.
1: Sage Dan, you're, you're <laughs> not true to your name. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I can say you've, you've been
0: around seeing some things, right? So,
1: What's next for you? What's on the horizon?
0: Well, uh, I would say... Uh, two things uh, at my current place right now, I'm the director of sports medicine at Lawrence Memorial Hospital and ortho, Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, really good opportunity for me because I really can use, uh, all three of my fields. Essentially. Um, I, uh, I applied this year, uh, for us to get a sports PT resident. Mm -hmm. So that's the first time. Um, I think we have the facilities and the opportunities, uh, with what we're doing, To make a good resident experience, so uh, I feel like I said I have a lot of uh, experience to pass on, and and people did it for me, so I feel it's one way we can do that. Uh, Another thing for me, it's a big hole, frankly, in my background. I don't have a published clinical research paper. Uh, I've done a ton of review articles, I've, as you guys know, uh, but I have not. I've I've stimulated research, like for example, my bench to box. You may have seen my bench to box. tests that I use. There's a couple places studying that now. So I've I've facilitated it and let the researchers do their thing, but I've never done clinical research. And to me, the people that are doing those things, the clinical research and clinicians to me have always been the heroes because research is hard. And that's why I'm not a person that bashes every, because you know how it is. Like I post a lot of stuff on Twitter about research articles and there's always somebody that's going to denigrate the study or or, you know, and there's certainly nuances of study, limitations in every study, but what's funny is you do a PubMed search and most of those people, their name never shows up. So, um, I, my point is, is that we got a couple papers approved the IRB, we're collecting data. So I really, really want to get a, a published paper. I feel that would be something, it's kind of a, a void in my, in my background. Um, so I, I would say professionally, but you know what, um, I'm a dad of three kids and I'm just trying to live the ordinary life. Well, um, just being a good husband, being a good father, being around for games. Uh, yeah, I, 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 like I said, just, uh, trying to have a, have a good professional life with continuing to grow. I I still think there's a lot to learn every day. That's why I still read incessantly. Um, still unmobilized, learn from other people, even younger clinicians coming up, you can always learn something, but, uh, like I said, just uh, just trying to lead a good life.
1: Well, it seems like those values cross over to just you in general, not just Dan the clinician and Dan the, the family man, but just overall. And that's I think it speaks volume to you and, and we can we see it, you know, just talking to you and um, we'll have to get you back on and sometime in the future. Hey, man, yeah. thank you.
0: I, I was really humbled when you asked me. I, I know I've listened to you guys before. I know you're, I know the uh, people you've had on. It's a quite a long list of really distinguished people. So, I mean, I don't know if you just, <laughs> somebody backed out and you needed somebody to fill in or what, but the fact that you put me on, I'm, I'm really humbled by it and I really appreciate it. And I hope it wasn't a colossal waste of your time on
1: a Friday afternoon. You earned your keep, Dan. We'll do it. We'll have to do it again. No, this was, this was <laughs> phenomenal. We're. We're just here to learn. Um, we're humbled anytime that we can have conversations with with, with people like you and uh, learn from people like you. So we want to thank you for coming on and, and spending your time with us.
2: You've increased our end today.
1: <laughs> Boom. Gosh. Well, I, spo- I suppose then mission accomplished. Hopefully your six listeners
0: feel the same way. <laughs> That's <So>. right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks so much, Dan.
0: Well, very good. Gentlemen, have a great weekend. Uh, Take care of yourselves, and hopefully we can meet down the road. And, John, you better look me up if you come to Kansas, buddy. We'll go get some barbecue and maybe fire up the smoker.
2: Oh I will. Now which which barbecue real quick? You, you Oklahoma Joe's or you where, what are you? Whoa, whoa whoa whoa, whoa whoa whoa. Are we talking <laughs> like
0: ribs or burn ends or burn or? ends? Okay. You got you got to fire off burn ends Ooh, here. man, Gates has got some good burn ends, but um I'll tell you if you haven't been to Q39 when you come to town, um you've got to I've heard go. a lot about okay, that. You got to go to Q39. Um you know the Oklahoma Joe's or Kansas City Joe's is kind of the navy blue blazer of Kansas City barbecue like that's everybody has it, that's where everybody goes, that's where they tell. And and it's awesome. There's no question about it. Uh, but Q39 is is the uh, rising star. Uh, there's some really – Next
2: good, level I've heard.
0: Yeah, it's it's really good, man. They, I don't know where to begin. Like they, they have a if, – if you're – they have a sandwich where it's pulled pork but then there's like uh, green apples on top and there's like this glaze. It's out of control. There's this pork belly appetizer. Man, it, it, I've never had pork belly until I went there. Oh, man. I mean it, it's just – Load up on the Crestor, put some extra Listerine <laughs> in the kit when you when you come, you know, or whatever it is your blood pressure med. It, it's okay, just for the weekend, it'll be good. <laughs> I thought he was Dave, passionate about
3: just, clinical work, dang.
0: <laughs> yeah, start talking barbecue.
1: Hey man, I gotta watch out.
0: When I moved to Kansas City, man, I took uh, I got my PHB, I got my uh, I got my uh, certified barbecue judge, man. So I, I had to learn what good barbecue is, and I didn't know so. That's the thing. I, I immersed. That's what you got to do. You got to immerse yourself in it. So that's what You're I did. all in. That's just right, man. Go all
2: in. Stay a I, do nothing, now too,
0: huh? I do nothing half-assed. It's 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 full throttle with everything.
1: <laughs> I respect that. That's Love awesome. great. <laughs> I mean, just... Plan a heavy yeah. squat session maybe the next day. Not that day. Yeah, won't no. won't do much that day, but yeah.
0: <laughs> if anything, do it beforehand. There you because go. Because okay. it's like, it's another, your, your, your system load with that stuff in your gut is at least 50 pounds more. <laughs> so take 50 off the bar because it's in your gut.
2: <laughs> Perfect. Accommodating resistance. Exactly. There you
0: Precisely. Precisely. Precisely.
1: Well, now everybody knows where to go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If
0: you're if you're in the in the Midwest one of the one of the beauties of the Midwest, that's definitely it for sure.
1: Absolutely. We know our way around
0: barbecue and the grill, so Right.
1: Dan, thanks so much. Thanks, gentlemen. You guys take care. Okay. We'll see you. Thank you too. One last thank you to Dan Lorenz for the great information and conversation. You can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Dan and follow his work. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, go to the link in the show notes, join the Calu community Facebook group and consider registering for the 2021 virtual Calu summit. Thanks everyone. Talk to you soon.